Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, and I have just the one co-host with me today. Um, Peter Cat joins me as we record uh, our first ever Christmas special of the On The Way podcast. Fifth year we, we're now into, a fifth season of the podcast, Peter, but the first time we've yep. sat down for a Christmas special. It is indeed. So it's about time we did Christmas and I'll yes. have to work extra hard without Sue here. I'll have to <laughs> channel her wisdom as well as my own. Yeah, we can work with that. Well, uh, I, I'm so excited by the Christmas episode we do have today. Um, today's guest is somebody who will be a known name to a, a number of our listeners, I'm sure. Uh, Alexander John Shire is a speaker and author with a background in anthropology, psychology and spiritual direction. His books include Returning from Camino, uh, Radical Transformation, The Four Gospel Journey of Heart and Mind, and coming in 2022, The 13 Days of Christmas, Celebrating the Awe and Wonder of Birth. Alexander John, thank you so much for, for making time for our podcast. Hey, this is a delight. And uh, we are talking to you in the middle of December, um, and uh, I know you, we've had a brief chat before we started recording. Um, you are living in Spain at the moment, not far from where the Camino walk ended for you. What, what's this like at the moment, this season of your life? Well, it's like I literally am sitting on the seawall on the Atlantic Ocean uh, in this northwest corner of Spain. And most people don't realize that this point of Spain is right up under the west coast of Ireland. So the west coast of Ireland and this point of Spain are the furthest west of this whole continent. Hmm. And um, it's, it is dark here. Uh, it is greatly dark. Uh, the sun comes up in the morning about 9.15. And by about 5 o'clock in the evening, it's, it's, uh, it's, we're back to evening tide. So uh, this, is, this is really the deep, dark, cold, windy, blustery December. Yeah, beautiful. And that's what we're going to explore today. It's um, it's one of the, the many amazing um, contributions that you have made uh, to, I suppose, um, reintegrating the stories of our faith tradition uh, with the human journey and the, the natural cycles of creation around us. And I know actually one of the podcasts that we have done um, that has received uh, generally um, positive feedback that people say has really helped them or really spoke to them in a way they weren't expecting was the cruciform pattern um, podcast we did a little while ago, Peter, talking about the Easter story, not as this historical event, but as a mythical story of the death, birth, so death, resurrection yeah. cycle of, of all of life. Um, and, and that rhythm is very evident in the Easter story and really helpful in the Easter story, but we don't see maybe the mythical patterns and rhythms in the Christmas story as much um, amidst the decorations and the carols and whatever else. Why is it, Alexander John, do you think that, that Christmas seems to be lacking maybe some some of the same depth that we feel we get from Easter mythically? Well, I, uh, it's so hard. First of all, I, to all of your uh, listeners, I lived between New Zealand and Australia for about four years in, in between 2013, 2017. Hmm. And, and I had this, it was always a huge challenge for me when I was in the beautiful Southern Hemisphere to celebrate Christmas, at least because for me, Christmas in the Northern Hemisphere is so connected to uh, the time of great darkness and darkness as the womb time. And really it's sort of the dark womb of God that this season speaks to. So when we're in the Southern Hemisphere, we have this great challenge of how to uh, experience the dark into light, whereas 
you're going from the light into the dark. Mm. So Christmas uh, was really born from the Celtic understanding of nature as telling the story of the movement from the dark time into the into the rebirth and the new fresh radiance. So it was very easy in some ways for Christianity when it met the Celtic world. And, and up at, at that point, we didn't have the great feast of Christmas yet. Mm. And we met the Celtic world and this moment of the birth of the new radiance was critical to them in the Northern Hemisphere because without that, there wouldn't be the growing cycle, there wouldn't be the coming of spring, there wouldn't be the crops, uh, there wouldn't be the warmth, everything that makes life in the Northern Hemisphere almost survivable. And so when we met the Celtic world, uh, when we came up out of the Mediterranean and met the Celtic world in Northern Europe, we understood that we knew the story of the rebirth of light uh, in, in the incredible radiant personality of Jesus the Christ. And so we chose to tell the nature story as also a way to understand the Jesus the Christ story. Mm -hmm. So we, we already had the tradition of telling the Jesus Christ story incarnationally. So it was not a stretch for us to look at the Celtic world and say, tell us what you're celebrating. And for us to take it in and go, we have that story in perhaps a deeper and more rich way. It's not only the story of nature, mm. but nature here is telling us the story in our bodies of the rebirth of Jesus Christ. And so our, our, our great story of Jesus met the Celtic world's great story of nature, and we joined together to tell an incarnational story that lives in our midst. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I, I, you mentioned, obviously, the Southern Hemisphere thing that we do miss down here in that, which is that Christmas Day is a, a basically one big party. Um, you know, people go to the beach. The beach. There's, <laughs> yeah, there's cricket games in the backyard. There's a big barbecue on. And, um, you know, it's it's the, the peak of summer. It's the peak of holidays. Kids have eight, nine weeks off school in the middle of it. it when, when you're celebrating Christmas at that time of the year, what what is it that you are, I suppose, in the world around you from, from a nature point of view? What is it that you're missing in the in the midst of that? Well, you're, you're missing the transition from the deep dark uh, to the new radiance. Mm. And uh, oftentimes in those years that I was between New Zealand and Australia at Christmas time, uh, for me, I would recapture that a bit by waking up early on Christmas morning, say 4, 4.30, and watching the sunrise and moving from that time of darkness to the time of fresh uh, early light and remembering that that journey from the dark to the light is the journey that that the Christ is making with us over and over and over and over again. And what I often try to do with the Feast of Christmas is to help people understand that the dark time is not how the world ends. The dark time is how the world begins again. And we yeah. know that story through Jesus Christ, that the Christ story is that every darkness, and if you right now are feeling in a personal dark time or a, or a cultural or a planetary dark time, 
um, we need this, the Jesus Christ story even more, that this is not the end. This is how a new era begins, that this is a moment of new creation. And the Northern Hemisphere can fully participate in that, uh, as I am here in Spain, where it is so cold and it is so dark. Um, and we are longing for that new light that we know is coming in a few weeks. But that outer expression is just a wonderful incarnational knowing of what we can know internally, wherever we are, that darkness will eventually give give forth mm. to new radiance. I think um, maybe the most common Christmas sermon I've ever heard in, in various churches growing up is something along the lines of, maybe it captures 20% of what you just expressed, which is something along the lines of, if you're in a tough time, it's okay. There's still hope for you there as well. Um, you know, it, I'm not saying that that's inherently an unhelpful message, but what it suggests is, yeah, if you're in a tough time, that sucks. Sorry, you have to be going through that. But you will still find hope. Whereas your take on it, your read on it, is that it's not just that there's there can be hope within the darkness, but that's actually the only place that new life ever is born. It's true. And I, I that is ultimately good news. Although I fully understand that when you're in it, um, there's, there's a large part of us that wants to get out of it as soon as possible. But I am trying to help us understand that the darkness is a face of what I call incarnationally the womb of God. That when we are sitting in darkness, we are sitting inside the place that God is re-knitting us. Mm -hmm. That God is forming us like that caterpillar in the chrysalis. Uh, to some incredible new birth that we actually can't fully understand yet, but it is true. And, and the more you go through these experiences, hope turns to trust. And that's something I, I really want to invite people to do is to, to be beyond the people of hope. Uh, we need hope, but we also need to move our hope towards trust so that when we're in the dark time, we come to know that with God, eventually, this is going to turn into something that's quite radiant and vital and creative. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I, I, you, people probably notice already that you prefer the, the word radiance to the word light. Um, what, instead of talking about the light that is coming, it's the radiance that's coming. Why do you prefer the, the word radiance? Well, so I'm trying to, this is all an experiment. <laughs> um, and because I think we're in a time right now to experiment with language. Mm. Uh, our, our language in the West has largely been dualistic. And when you say light, you're going to immediately think light versus dark. And what I want us to, to, to play with, to experiment with is what does it look like when the light and dark are in some measure playing with each other? And you, you may know, I, I come, I'm the born of Lebanese immigrants to the United States, uh, first generation. My parents were born in Lebanon and came to the States as children. I, I grew up in a Lebanese household, and I grew up with the language in my church on Sunday morning. My Catholic church was Aramaic, the language of Jesus. And when you understand the worldview of, of of the Aramaic language, 
you know, you can't say a word like light. There's no word in Aramaic that, that is light. There's no word in Aramaic that's dark. What you do is you paint a picture of a certain time during the day or a certain time at night. And in that picture, you, the picture describes how light and dark play with each other in a certain ratio. So if you're using a nighttime word, you're talking about night with a certain quality of starlight or moonlight. And if you were talking about daytime, you're talking about light with a certain aspect of shadow in it. So uh, I, I'm trying to play with language in a way uh, that, that moves us beyond just concepts of light and dark. And radiance to me is my current experiment because it seems to, because I think with radiance, we have a sense of movement. Mm. Yeah. And, and we have a sense of how light and dark are, are in measure with each other. Mm. So it's, it's a more non-dualistic whole expression because uh, dark is not demonic. And sadly, the Western languages have tended to paint it that way. Whereas in the Aramaic view and the, and the Hebraic view, uh, darkness is the queen. I love it. In, in the Jewish prayers, they talk about welcoming the queen of night that comes to bring us rest and renewed vitality. Mm. So darkness has a very beneficial and holy aspect, which is largely what, which is largely part of the Christmas story for the Northern Hemisphere, because we know that it is in the deepest dark that the new radiance is born. Mm. And spiritually, what's true wherever you live on the planet is internally, the deepest dark is where the new radiance is born. I love that term radiance in that for me, it conjures up the idea that the, the light actually comes out of the darkness, that it's actually, uh, it, it comes from within rather than the idea of something being imposed from outside. So I think it was a, it's a really rich, I think, I think in terms of language experiment, I think it's right on the money. And um, we have to really get away from that dualistic if we think about only light and dark, then we miss the twilight, we miss the dawn. One of the things I love about the dawn is that you really can't capture the moment and there's this incredible, beautiful interplay of light and dark and shadow that suddenly one realises one's actually missed it, in a sense. It's sort of something you only recognise in hindsight and I think... I think that cycle you're talking about is like that too. Sometimes we don't notice the time of transformation itself, but we look back and think, oh, I'm not sad anymore. Or, mm. oh, this, is, this life has actually taken shape in a way that's actually taking me by surprise. That's a beautiful use of language. Thank you. Welcome. And you remind me how in our, in our Christian tradition, in our earliest tradition, um, the Eucharist was not celebrated in the day or in the night, mm. but it was only celebrated either at the hour of sunset mm. or the hour of sunrise. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was that moment where we observed um, the transition in the outer world. And we know that we make that same internal spiritual transition. Yeah, yeah that's it's great. Cool.
Yeah. And, oh, that, that's so beautiful. And I suppose there's a, you, you mentioned moving from hope to trust. There's a trust in the, we all have a trust in the rhythm of the day. Um, you know, that it's rare that the sun sets and we sit around as humans in, in the 21st century and, and say, oh no, what if it doesn't come up again the next day? We have a trust in those rhythms around us of creation, but we don't really have the same trust in the rhythms in our own life in a sense. Why, why do you think we are so um, disconnected from these rhythms internally? Well, we've, what makes me sad as a Christian uh, sad about our tradition at this moment is we've disconnected our great tradition from incarnation and and we've disconnected from looking at nature. Uh, nature is not God, but nature is a face of our God. And that I'm not adoring nature, I'm adoring the prime mover behind nature, but nature tells us also the story. Yeah. And this is what was so remarkable about the early Christian tradition is that we wanted to tell not just the Jesus story on a printed page, but we wanted to tell it through nature because in nature, our bodies have a certain sensation and feeling. Uh, and so the transition from daytime to nighttime or the transition from nighttime to daytime were, was an essential incarnational experience in our bodies, which also connected us to our experience of our God, so that we knew that our God wasn't just a theological concept, as beautiful and true as that is, but it was also something in our bodies, and it was also something in the cosmos around us, and that all of it's telling the very same glorious story. Yeah. That's that's brilliant. That's so helpful. And if we actually look into the Christmas story for a little bit, because you've spoken about the the brightest radiance being born in the place of the deepest darkness, where, how do you see that at play when you look at the historical Christmas story? So, uh, um, deep deep breath here. <laughs> uh, when um, in in the northern hemisphere, when we met the Celtic world. Um, and we had come up for the Mediterranean, which is very near the equator. Um, and the sun cycle is not so dramatic. It's like most traditions in the Mediterranean basin follow a moon cycle because the, the transition of the moon tells us the journey much more than the transition of the sun. But when, when we met the Celtic world, we saw what they were doing and we learned that we could not help them to move deeper in their understanding of God without helping them understand that they already had the story of Jesus the Christ. Mm. So, we, so we saw that the winter solstice, which in those days, uh, you know, 16, 1700 years ago, uh, was December the 25th was the winter solstice. And what they were doing on the day before the winter solstice is most Celtic villages had an oak tree at the center of the village, which was their sacred tree. And the oak tree was their sacred tree because they believed that they had harnessed fire by the striking of lightning setting a limb on the oak tree, a, a blaze, 
they cut the limb off and were able to harness fire in that way. And fire is the essential element which helped them live until the springtime. So there would be a, an oak tree at the center of the village, which was the sacred tree. And it was barren at this point in December. And in the barrenness on the day before the winter solstice, they would tie ribbons and they would tie fruits and all manner of decoration of this sacred tree, which on the 25th of December, they were going to celebrate as the tree being reborn. Mm. Well, Christians saw this and we're like, we know this story. <laughs> this is the story of the great tree in the Garden of Eden. And we know that in the story of the birth of Jesus the Christ and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus the Christ, the parent, that the, the gates to paradise are reopened. And so we took this decoration of the great sacred tree on the 24th of December, and we brought it into our story. Yeah. We helped the Celts understand that they didn't need to change their story. They didn't need to destroy the story. They just needed to understand the story deeper. That whereas on the 24th of December, they believed that unless they decorated the tree and celebrated the tree, that the sun would not be reborn. And we helped them understand that the decoration of the tree was the celebration of a reality, a permanent reality, that in Jesus the Christ, the Son is always reborn. Yeah. So all of these great uh, symbols of the Celtic world, and I, it, I, I feel a little irritated today at the, the thought that Christianity destroyed the Celtic world. Oh, no. When Christianity met the Celtic world, the Celtic world was destroying itself, itself over, over tribal warfare. And Christianity met the Celtic world and helped them reharmonize. And we didn't take away their great rituals. We added depth to them. Mm. And, and they gave a depth to us. So that the, the beauty of all this imagery that we have from the Celtic world lives not as, quote unquote, pagan of the earth and anti-Christian, but actually, we took it and we understood because we understand that nature is a, also a face of our God. We understand how nature helps us celebrate deeper the truth of the story going on everywhere, which is Jesus yeah. the Christ. Yeah, I know on the podcast before, Peter, you've spoken about the two books, um, how our tradition has two holy books um, and, and I suppose what we're talking about here is the harmonizing of the two books. This is not playing them off against each other or picking one over the other, but, but harmonizing them. Right. Yeah, correct. Yeah. The yeah, book of nature and the book of the scriptures are in harmony. They're not in competition. Yeah. And they interpret, interpret each other as well, which is one of the things we've lost with our bibliocentric, um, approach in Western Christianity, particularly with abandon the other great story yeah yeah i suppose it's um it's one of those constant uh fascinations morbid fascinations almost that that christians would not be the first to be discussing environmentalism and climate change and things along yeah. those lines because we become disconnected from the the first book yeah. itself and that's all that binary thinking again where you know 
it's us versus nature, so we're not actually part of nature. It has nothing to tell us because the real world is somewhere else and we're on some sort of alien experience or holiday or purgatory or whatever is used to say that this life isn't the real deal um, versus the real game that's to come and all you have to do is sort of hold on and get through this one so you get to the real deal, I think. You know, mm. It's a form of nihilism. It's, it's actually one of the darkest... One of the um, most significant forms of darkness, I think, on the planet. And um, so I'm, I'm really grateful for this rekindling of how the book of nature speaks mm. to our inner nature too. I think that's really important. It's not just reflecting the Bible, but it actually speaks to how our internal rhythms are and how life plays out. And, you know, my my other great work, and perhaps my the greatest work that is sort of my legacy is um, is is reanimating the four gospels, mm-hmm. uh, both in terms of that each gospel has within it a landscape, and the landscape is a great part of the message. But not only that, uh, in each gospel is a season. That Matthew is the season of autumn. And Mark is the season of winter in John's spring and Luke's summer. And that that's actually the experience of the season is actually written into the text. Hmm. And we've tended, uh, again, because we haven't been thinking incarnationally. Yeah. And, and how the two great scriptures come together. Yeah. We, hmm. we, we've divorced the story uh, from nature itself. You mentioned your your work there, which um, many will be familiar with the the Quadratus work around the four Gospels. Um, to, for for those who might have heard that and thought, how could Matthew be autumn? What do you mean by that? How do you how do you normally go about um, introducing the idea to people? Um, it, let's see how I how I can do this simply. Uh, it's a simple idea, and it's a in it has layers of uh, of, of uh, the tapestry, but. In the experience of Matthew, Matthew is writing to the Jewish Christian audience of the day about a very, very dark moment. The Jewish Christian people believe that the sun has gone down and that they are not sure it's going to come back up because the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed. The Jewish priesthood has been ended by massacre. Many people are fearful that this is the moment of apocalypse. And Matthew puts into his text all the feeling and texture and stories of when the day suddenly turns dark. And what and that moment in the nature cycle is autumn, when the 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 old day is over and we again approach the time of sunset and and first in the first hours of nighttime. And so Matthew is bringing us back to that moment to help us remember, oh, we're culturally living through a moment which is very much like that moment of sunset and early night. And we all know how that story ends. And this story is going to end that way too. Mm. So it it's, it's in the text, but you have to sort of, because we're so conceptual when we come to these texts, we've mm. lost the incarnational feel that's underneath the story that the story is built upon. Mm. Yeah. And we've also turned the Gospels into something like a fruit salad. <laughs> so instead of instead of looking at each of the Gospels with the incredible integrity that they carry and that their story 
each of the stories has rich um, detail in it. We, we spent an inordinate amount of time trying to harmonise them and to make it all into one historical piece rather than looking for the gift that each of the Gospels gives us. You know, I, th I think the early church did an amazing thing of preserving the diversity. And then there's been the sort of the perversity of particularly the rational times where we've just tried to hammer out the, um, the differences and explain them away instead of saying, okay, so what? Why, why has Matthew written this story in this way that isn't the same as Luke? You know, the birth narratives being the absolute, you know, the agony of listening to someone trying to harmonise Luke yeah. and Matthew's birth stories. So, And, you know, you end up with the crib where everybody ends up visiting the <laughs> poor, poor right. mother who's just been, you know, <laughs> <laughs> She's just given birth and she gets this raid of angels, shepherds, wise people, um, the odd person from the inn who pops in to have a look and, and all the damn animals sort of making a noise as well. And she's supposed to sort of still stay there looking serene. And uh, whereas, yes, the, other, the stories themselves have that incredible diversity of uh, detail that we don't need to harmonise. Yeah. Just like we don't need to harmonise, although I guess our culture does that. You know, we, we run the air conditioners all year round as if as if the seasons are the same and electric light destroys the dynamism of the light and darkness and radiance. Um, so I think you're really inviting yeah, I mean, to get back to, in, as you say, into an incarnational faith, live, live embodied. You beautifully said, Peter, and, uh, you know, with my other work on the Gospels, I believe that the early church got it exactly right. I'm not looking for some hidden away text or I'm not, there's, there's, a, there's a very deep profound reason why these four mm. and why they were put in a certain reading sequence. Mm. And the reading sequence tells a larger story than what any of the four alone can tell. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, it's just amazing to me that they knew that they knew that, or that they allowed spirit to teach them something, and we're the beneficiaries of it. Yeah, yeah. And so, you, so you think the order? That's really interesting. So the order, as in Matthew, Mark, is actually significant in terms of the way the seasons play out. Absolutely. Because, you know, and, historically and, we say, oh, Mark's first and then you've got Matthew and Luke sort of over here and then John at the end. So that's really, that's really interesting that you well, start with when, Matthew. Yeah, they sick great. Right. Whenever we do something different than our Jewish mother, it's of significance. Yeah. And if we had stayed with the Jewish plan of scripture, we would have, we would have read the books in the sequence that they were written. Mm. Christianity, mm. Christianity changed that. Yeah. So you know that it was that the change was significant. Now, why was it significant? Yeah. And I say because because each of the four texts is written to a different season and written to a different question, and uh, the season and the question is one round of the spiritual journey. Hmm. So Matthew's written to the question of how we face change. Yeah. And it and it has the season of autumn in it. Whereas Mark is written to the question of how we move through suffering, and it's written to the question yeah. of winter, or yeah. into the season of winter anyway. They knew that. Mm. Yeah. I, I actually believe they consciously yeah. knew that. 
And that's why they were so comfortable, I guess, with the ending of Mark, which basically is, and they were afraid, full stop. Right. Whereas <laughs> right. Later, later, right. later people said, oh, we can't, we can't have this, we can't have this. And so all this other stuff gets added on to make it look nice. I know, yeah. You know, Disney was alive all those centuries ago. Yeah, <laughs> they had to, they yeah, had right. they had to write yeah. the Disney ending. Yeah, that's right. They knew exactly what it is, the Disney ending. And yet, if it is the winter season, the idea that it's just and they were afraid, and that's the end because it's the darkness has fallen. Then, welcome to winter, folks, and welcome to that part of your life. Yeah. yeah. So like resurrection. The, you know, yeah. I like to talk about what's resurrection in the winter time. Resurrection in the wintertime is believing in something that there's no sensory evidence of yet. Yeah. That's mm. resurrection, mm. is the ability to go through winter, go through the nighttime, knowing this is not the end. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. And that I suppose that ties back to what we're talking about here. And, and your work um, with the four Gospels, Alexander John, the, the Quadratus work is just... Um, Oh, it is it is the, the sort of work that I wish would be sent to every church in the world because it transforms, mm. it opens up the, the gospels in the most transformative way. And um and having um read a bit of the the connection to Joseph Campbell's hero's journey as well that you do with the four gospels, it's just extraordinary and um and well worth sorting out. But as we as we look at that question of winter you just said yes. about about trusting or knowing in a in a deeper way of something that there is no evidence of yet. When you look at the the historical Christmas story and the, the the accounts that we do have, the two accounts we do have, um, I know there's so many elements in there that you you love to pick uh, pick up on and and talk about how those are showing us something interesting that maybe we miss. For example, um, there is a house down the street that has a a big nativity scene, Christmas lights, and the the shepherds in this nativity scene are there following the star. And the shepherds look very well dressed and they're all happy and, and, you know, look like very civil members of society. But I've heard you talk about the shepherds before and how that's part of the story that we need to hear that, that we miss when we just gloss over the whole thing is happy families. Oh, yes. So uh, uh, let's go back to what who the shepherd was 2000 years ago. Mm. Um, now, it's 3000 years ago during the time of David. The shepherd was the high, upstanding, great figure of the Jewish people. But in the time of Jesus, the shepherd had become the outcast. The, the shepherd was a shepherd because he, or I presume she, had done something which meant that they had to be removed from polite society. They had so gone, gone against the, the rules of uh, Jewish life that they were ostracized and shunned and made to do the work, the, the dirtiest, most vile work that was known in those days was to be a shepherd and to be out in the fields. And when you live with sheep, you take on the smell of sheep. Mm. And the smell of sheep, if, if, if a shepherd were to come into a village, the smell of the sheep would precede them. And it's, it was more effective than having a bell around your neck. People knew who you were and what you had done and that you were to be avoided. And this is who the angel comes to in Luke. This is, and, and I love to say that the angel is coming in Luke to that raw, primitive, uncouth place in us that place which needs grace and love. And every one of us has some deep hurt or wound inside, which we can't believe that 
that God would come to us in that place. Mm. And this is the tremendous uh, annunciation in the Gospel of Luke, that that's precisely the place um, that that the angels come to announce the the, uh, the coming birth of, of Jesus the Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I also love that, you know, wherever you are on the planet, you can do the old Christian rhythm of telling. There are four stories that we tell from the nighttime to the full light of Christmas Day. And the gospel story of the hour was pinned to the hour of night or day. So uh, the gospel of Christmas that would be told at sunset is, is the genealogy. And the genealogy is that we are a people in darkness and we know the journey. And we know that if we endure faithfully through the nighttime, that there's going to be new birth. But then in the nighttime, uh, we hear the gospel of uh, uh, the angels coming to the shepherds from Luke. And then in the ancient cycle, they wouldn't tell about the shepherds going to Bethlehem yet. They would wait and they would read that gospel at sunrise. So in the night, there's the announcement to that place inside that the birth is happening. And then at sunrise, we go and like the shepherds who go to Bethlehem and see, we have that experience at sunrise of seeing the rising sun. And the rising sun confirms exactly what the angels have also told to the shepherds. And then the fourth and final gospel of Christmas Day was the prologue from the Gospel of John. And the prologue from the Gospel of John helps us reset the Feast of Christmas, not just as one moment in time, but as the truth of all time. Mm. That Jesus the Christ has always been. Mm. And mm. Jesus the Christ is everywhere. And now we make the journey into that greater mystery to understand in some ways every day is Christmas and everywhere is Christmas. Yeah. that's And compared to the, uh, it's clear that because of the love and the joy and the Hallmark films and the whatever else of, of our modern Christmases, that uh, it, a lot of this can get obscured. Um, I know there's even a lot of churches around the world do some sort of a blue Christmas service for those who may be suffering through something immense uh, or immensely hard at Christmas. And they're almost seen as sideline services. You know, the, the main thing is, uh, is great and good news and celebratory. But for those who are struggling, we have this offering as well to, to make sure you aren't left alone. Whereas your reading of the Christmas story is that it's almost as if Christmas exists for the ones who are struggling this year. For the rest, you'll get to it. <laughs> you'll get there. But for the ones who are in immense pain right now, you're the ones the Christmas story exists for. Is that, is that a fair read? It really, it really is. And it's, it's for that place in all of us mm. that so needs the story of love, that so needs the story of grace, that so needs uh, the actions of generosity. There, there's, it, we may be financially secure. We may not be. Uh, we may have all of our loved ones around us, but we may not be. But every one of us has some place inside that's hidden away that needs that grace that is being celebrated as, quote, unquote, the blue Christmas. And the, the transition from the Celtic world, the Celts celebrated the winter solstice in fear. Yeah. That 
that will the son be reborn? They were doing this because they felt obligated to help the son be reborn. And we have the story for all of us that no matter where that place inside of need and hurt and uh, ache, uh, that there is a grace that can come and live there. Yeah, um, our, our first episode next year is with, you might have come across Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, um, who's a brilliant writer in the US, and and she writes in a memoir, which we've been I've been reading lately um, in preparation for that one. She writes about how a therapist once told her that when you're giving birth, the place where the pain is the most intense is where the birth is occurring. Um, it's, it's not as if you have to endure the pain while the birth happens elsewhere, but it hurts so much because something's being born. And, um, yes. and yeah. that's what I've, has been unlocked for me so powerfully in in your work is the idea that it's not that you endure winter to get to spring but that it is exactly out of winter that spring arises that spring cannot exist without winter beforehand um which is such a deeper more powerful thing And, and to think that when you're in that deepest darkness it's not just keep going keep going keep going because maybe there'll be a bit of a bright spark some point but it's that what something is currently happening. You're currently being birthed in some profound way. I suppose the question then, though, is we all know people who get stuck in their pain, people who get stuck in, in their deep darkness and may feel like they've been stuck there for years or decades even. What is it that's required of us when we're in the deep darkness to ensure that, that the new radiance is born? Well, it, it, it's true because some of us maybe many of us can collapse into the dark and become people of despair and cynicism uh, maybe even people of helplessness Mm. and what what we don't do is we don't invite the powerful vital energy of jesus to be with us in that dark Uh, we tend to invite jesus to come and dispel the dark but the dark has a work, has a spiritual work to do. Invite the Christ to be with you so that you can fruitfully walk the darkness mm-hmm. rather than to um, abort the spiritual work by asking the darkness to be dispelled, to, to be dispelled too quickly. I heard one of the, one of the best short uh, sermons I've ever heard from, given by an Anglican priest. And he just simply said, uh, pray that this pain would not be taken away from me until it has done its work. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard for us to hear because we think, oh, that means I'm going to be in pain forever. Uh, No, invite the Christ to be with you in the pain Mm. and let him carry you. There's a beautiful kind of open-handed surrender to it all, to, to the, the natural processes, I suppose, rather than trying to force an outcome, you know, and, and putting your, your right. board shorts and your T-shirt on in the middle of winter to head to the beach. It's not pretending that things aren't right. what they are, but instead accepting right. that they are what they are. And I, it might be Elizabeth Gilbert who has a quote, something along the lines of, don't rush through the experiences that have the most power to transform you. Which, beautiful, yeah, beautiful, beautiful. So, and again, it's the harmonizing of all of this wisdom that we we know. We know that if you go and plant certain plants in the midst of winter, that's not going to go particularly well for you. You have to acknowledge it for what it is. Mm-hmm. Well, a couple of other parts so, of the Christmas story that I wanted to touch on, unless there's something else you want to add there. 
No, I thought maybe we might talk a little bit about Boxing Day, but go ahead. Oh, yes. I do want to get to Boxing Day, but I, I heard you say um, on, on one of the podcasts you've spoken about this on, um, you spoke about the Magi in the story, um, or the wise men as they're often called, and um, and how they come bearing gifts after the step into change has occurred. And it was so, so beautiful. I thought I'd, I'd have to ask you to, to talk about that one again here. Well, again, um, uh, the uh, coming of the Magi is in Matthew. Mm. Uh, which is autumn, uh, the uh, uh, story of the shepherds, which is in the gospel of Luke, which is summer. But so Matthew is, here we are, we've been invited to change and to grow, and we're so fearful, and we don't think we have the resources. And there is this um, wonderful mystery and grace that happens when you make the decision with God to open to a new journey, we often receive unexpected resources. We often receive unexpected friendships uh, or un unexpected help, which is very much the Magi showing up at our door uh, to help us on this journey. And I love that it's there in the story of Matthew, which is the story of, you know, Joseph has had to make this terrible, terrible choice between family and Mary. You know, he is the good upstanding son uh, in the Jewish family, which is in the line of David with the prophecy of the Messiah being part of the line. And he has to make the decision to take Mary with child, which means he is going to be shamed and shunned and thrown out of the family, which is why he ends up in Nazareth. Mm. Um, and yet he knows that there is this whisper of God that he cannot forsake. Mm. And so he makes this decision that everything would say, you've just lost everything, Joseph. And then what happens? Magi show up. And that's also our story when we deeply are working with the Christ, that when we thought, our decision was about loss, we suddenly discover new resources and new gain. Mm. Yeah. Again, the, the when you un, unpack some of the, the mythical part of this um of this Christmas story, it it takes on such a richer meaning um than some of the carols we sing. And this is why I think your work has been has been so profound to access Christmas in a way that maybe Easter has always felt a bit more accessible. But I have to ask you about Boxing Day. That was the next thing I had written down here to explore. So um because your your I think the Boxing Day thing and, and there's a bit of a tie in with when you talk about Santa Claus and Saint Nicholas as well there, which I might talk about in a bit. But can you tell us a little bit about the origins of Boxing Day? Uh, I, I I love this story. Um I grew up in Alabama in the States and my father was a great boxing fan. And we always watched on television, the Friday night boxing fights. And I kept thinking, what does this have to do with Christmas? And why is it the 26th of December? <laughs> All right, here's the story. And I love how um, this connects back to the Celts. What were the Celts doing on the next day um, after the winter solstice? Well, on this particular day, they wanted to teach the young boys about the need to sacrifice so that others can live. And the way that they were doing this was ritually in something that I think Christians found horrific. 
But men and boys went out on this day to kill a wren, a W-R-E-N, the bird. The wren is considered the bird of fertility in much of, of England. And they would kill a wren and they would pour the blood of the wren into the earth in a ritual that they believed was helping the earth regenerate. But the story here is that what they believe that you have to teach boys becoming young men the value of sacrificing for others. And so Christians saw this and they went, well, we want nothing to do with killing a bird, but we understand the story. We understand sacrificial love. We understand giving of oneself. And we have this beautiful story of Stephen, the first martyr. Stephen was the first person to give his very self, to give his blood for greater love. And so we made this story not a day where men and boys go out to kill a bird, but we made this story the feast of Stephen, and we gave men and boys the spiritual practice this day to go and collect food and money and clothing for the poor and for the shut-in. Hmm. And then we have this beautiful carol of good King Wenceslas on the Feast of Stephen, and the carol goes on. But how beautiful that part of the Christmas cycle is this story about men giving of the sweat of their heart for generosity. And the power in the Celtic world, and maybe it's still true to us, but in the Celtic world, they believed that women knew the story of sacrificial blood in their body because of birth. But men had to learn that story in a physical way of, mm. uh, and the way that they wanted to teach the story was that men giving of themselves in physically going out in the dead of winter to collect food and clothing and money to take to the poor in the shut-in. And, and when you tie that into the winter solstice and that this was the time of the year where there was no harvest, where things were, you spoke earlier about when you go into the deepest darkness, that's where you need to stay open and generous. Um, you know, this was the hardest time of year to be generous because there was probably less to go around than normal. And that was exactly when the tradition of giving came into it. The generosity is what we do when we need generosity. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so There's good. a wonderful story, that beautiful story. There's a wonderful story I was told of a church in um, Southern America where the, they decided they they had the church had been in the centre of town and they were going to move to the outskirts of town. And the pastor was really worried about the fact that this very poor family wouldn't be able to afford to get to the new church and didn't want to... Um, embarrass them by offering to pay for them to go. So came up with this scheme to ask the whole congregation to give bus tickets so that then the bus tickets could be quietly given to this family so that they could get to church. And he was taken by surprise because the very first people to give a bus ticket was this family he wanted mm. to help because they yeah. knew how hard it was. They knew how hard it was to have enough money wow. to get a bus to go to the outer suburbs and uh, so, yeah, so out of Beautiful. this thing, and that sacrifice. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's it. 
and and um, that does touch a little bit on the the Santa Claus story as well, which I know is not often something that we work too much into the Christmas narrative, um, the Saint Nicholas story. But um, but it has a place when you look at the generosity. Could you share that that story a little bit with us, Alexander John, if you're happy to? Well, so um, we meet the Celtic world, and the Celtic world has this figure called the Green Man. And uh, the green man lives on the North Star. And at the winter solstice, the Celts create bonfires to entice the green man to come back to Earth, to come back into the fire and go through the fire back into the Earth so that the Earth will green. Mm. Well, it's not hard and I hope that people, um, if little ones are around, uh, might sort of <laughs> take a moment to uh, turn the volume down or, or, or away, but it's not hard to understand how this story becomes uh, the Santa Claus story of the North Pole who comes into our houses through the chimney. Mm. Uh, but the deeper story here is the Celts are enacting a ritual about greening, about generosity. Everything in the winter solstice for them is about, uh, about the vitality of the spiritual practice of generosity. Well, again, Christians are like looking around, who, who do we have in our tradition which teaches us about generosity? Well, there are many. But one particular person in the first thousand years of Christianity, especially, is Bishop Nicholas of Myra, a, a city on the coast of Turkey. I like to remind us that Nicholas is an Arabic bishop of <laughs> Christianity. And uh, he is born into a family of enormous privilege. I don't know how much wealth, but they say that as a child, he was uber wealthy. Uh, put whatever figure you want on that. He's elected bishop. He becomes a priest. He's elected bishop at the tender age of 18, which is probably more like about 35 or 36 today. And he dies a pauper. He spends his bishopric taking care of the needs of his people. And one of the needs especially was uh, in those days, many families with daughters were so poor that when the daughter came of age, they would have to sell her into some form of slavery because they didn't have a dowry for her. And this is where the tradition of uh, putting something in children's shoes, uh, St. Nicholas, upon knowing that, uh, that a family was now facing this, would go to the house in the secret of night and leave a dowry for her in her shoes left outside her door. Mm. So this idea of the outpouring of generosity at a time of great need becomes part of the Christmas story. Yeah, that's so, that, I love that because again, it's similar to what happened with the Celts back in the day. It's not abandoning um, the Christian tradition, uh, you know, or anything like that. It's incorporating, there is a space in which the, the Santa Claus character then belongs in the Christian Christmas story, Ooh. right? which is just Absolutely. beautiful. It's, I really, yeah. I, to me, it's a sadness sometimes 
um, in, in the Hopi tradition of, that I used to live near in the American Southwest, that um, they, when they teach their children that the figures in their sacred rituals are actually their aunts and their uncles, they always do it very carefully to remind them that those figures are evoking actions and practices that they can live their life in service of. And that when we tell our children that perhaps about Santa Claus, oftentimes we don't go that next step to talk about that generosity is true and the generosity they, that they have received Ooh. is something that we hope they will live their life in service of. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. So when you enter the deep, dark, cold winters of life, if you stay open and generous, even in that space, you will find that new radiance is born. And um, I think a quote of, of yours I heard once speaking particularly about the Gospel of Matthew was, it's not that yesterday was a lie, it's just that yesterday was too small. Um, some sense that, that the new radiance takes you deeper, broader, vaster than, than what was before. It's not just that things will be okay again, but that in some profound way, they'll be deeper than they were before. Yeah. And that's, yeah. as you said, that isn't, that, that isn't hope, that is trust, that is the cycle of life, yeah. isn't it? Beautiful. Um, Beautifully said. So before, as we wrap up, a question I wanted to ask you that I haven't heard you asked on another podcast, Alexander John. So I've wondered it because you have become, whether by intention or or just coincidence, the Christmas guy um, for (laughs) for many podcasts around the world. But a question I'm curious to know the answer to is what what does a Christmas Eve and a Christmas day look like for you in your life today? What do you do? over that 24, 48 hours, and then I suppose the the 12 or 13 days of Christmas all up. What is it that you do in that time as your your practice, your rituals? So I, I'm going to uh, go back a few years to, to, my, to all my years in Santa Fe. And I um, in Spain this year, I'm, I'm really wrestling with how I'm going to create this for myself. But my tradition has been for many, many years that I would stop at sunset on December the 24th and I would uh, light the Christmas tree, which I had not fully, well, let me explain that um, I would have the tree in the house uh, and put the lights on the tree the day before the winter solstice. And I would light the tree for the first time that night, just tree and lights And then I would spend the next uh, few days, especially the the daytime of December the 24th, putting the ornaments on. And that at nightfall on December the 24th, I would light the fully adorned tree for the first time. Mm. And I would sit with myself and a few friends and we would read the genealogy story. And we would talk about who those figures are in our lives who have inspired us to, to, a, to a trust walk and to a new wonder in life. Then uh, later in the evening, I would go out usually through the snows of Santa Fe and attend my local church for uh, a late night, even perhaps a midnight mass. Um, I would come home from mass and I would sit quietly at the tree and read the story of the announcement of to the angels in the nighttime uh, from Matthew. I mean, from from uh, from Luke, 
uh, I'd get to bed, I'd wake myself back up right before dawn, and I'd sit by the tree and read the story of the shepherds coming to the manger to adore. Mm. And then uh, sometime later in uh, in day, usually probably 11 o'clock or, or midday, in the full light of Christmas Day, um, I would read the prologue. And I would add uh, some full-throated alleluias or uh, maybe even a piece of music from the Messiah. Oh. Well, I'll take notes from that. That's going to be uh, – <laughs> I might incorporate some of that. That's such a beautiful way to um, – to explore and, and navigate the season, and uh, the the Christmas book that um, you've you've been working uh, on for also, a while. You, well, the, the, to to carry that a little bit forward, um, I generally would uh, open one gift a day through the thirteen days of Christmas, oh, wow. and open the last open the last gift or the last card on uh, the feast of the Epiphany. The the book, you know, part, part of my winter nighttime experience, I, I, I've. I did the initial draft of a book called The 13 Days of, of Christmas um, in December 2020 uh, with the, the full expectation that the final completed book would be out now. And then I got very sick and had to have surgery and there was a long recovery. And so now my sincere hope and belief is, is that the book will be out for Christmas 2022. Um, the book is The 13 Days of Christmas, and it tells the story about why we have 13 days. And I think most people will say 13 days, aren't there 12? No. Uh, Christmas Day is the first day, followed by the 12 days of Christmas. So that mm. actually it's a 13-day festival, with the 13th day being the great feast of Epiphany. Mm. I wonder why we, we call it the 12 days. I wonder where that came from. Well, I'll, t I'll tell you my wondering about that. Yep. Um, the Celts had a 13-day festival for the winter solstice, and it was in honor of the goddess because the goddess was their image of birth. I think Christians may have been a little embarrassed at the connection between 13 and the goddess, and so they did sort of a mind trick with us, which was to give us Christmas day followed by the 12 days, yeah, right. which helped us forget that it was a 13 day festival. <laughs> yeah. Can't, yeah. can't prove that, but <laughs> it, it's a, it's a good working assumption. Yeah. It's got a good, right. Uh, got a ring to it. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. Yeah. There's something in that for sure. Um, well, look, Alexander John, it's been uh, it's been one of the great gifts of this mm. Christmas season to be able to to share a conversation with you. Your work has been influential in my life, and I know the lives of many of our listeners for for quite some time. So, for you to make time to join us um, this December um, to to tell this story one more time, it just uh, it means so much. I really have appreciated this hour. It's helped me deepen in the experience. Yeah, beautiful. Mm. Well, you can find Alexander John Shire through the Quadratus website, um, and you can also find uh, all of his books online um, there as well. Alexander John, thank you so much, and uh, and Merry Christmas, I suppose. <laughs> and to the two of you.